Hello and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and thanks so much for joining us for a fascinating episode that we have today on the topic of nostalgia. Nostalgia, of course, is part of the marketing playbook. And if you search the term nostalgia marketing, you'll find no shortage of content on the topic as well as why it's been so popular a tactic for several years now. And you can see examples, both good and bad, of how companies and brands have used nostalgia in their marketing. And today we have two great guests who are going to share their perspective on nostalgia, beginning first with a broader exploration of what nostalgia is, its history, its origin story, if you will, and how it has evolved over time and the different kinds of nostalgia that we experience as human beings. And then we'll explore more specifically the role nostalgia plays in branding and marketing. First, I had the pleasure to speak with Dr. Christine Bacho, who is one of the world leaders and pioneers on the study of nostalgia. And in addition to many scholarly publications, Dr. Bacho is also the architect and, and creator of the Nostalgia Inventory, which is a survey that assesses proneness to personal nostalgia. The Nostalgia Inventory has been translated into multiple languages and is also available as an app. Dr. Bacho teaches courses in cognitive psychology, learning, and decision-making at Lemoyne College in New York. And next, we'll hear from my colleague at History Factory, Corey Camiso, our Senior Director of Creative, who recently wrote an article on nostalgia called Cowbells, Whoppers, and Super Grover, The Power of a Good Throwback which you can search and find on historyfactory.com. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversations with Dr. Christine Baccio and Corey Camiso. And in the spirit of nostalgia, you'll hear a different level of audio in my and Corey's conversation, as well as some, uh, some nature in the background as uh, we approach spring here in Virginia. And that's because Corey and I live just a neighborhood away from one another, and she just walked over and we had the opportunity to get together on the back porch and be together in person for our discussion and then have a cocktail. So I hope I'm not rubbing it in and I'm hopefully triggering some fond nostalgia for those of you who may be missing the opportunity to have a face-to-face -face conversation with a friend and colleague over a drink. So buckle up and listen in as we learn more about what it means to have sentimentality for the past. Hello, Christine. Welcome, and thank you for joining History Factory Plugged In. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. Our pleasure. And um, we'll, we'll start with, I am really eager to hear how one stumbles into the study of a uh, an area that, that I guess many of us wouldn't immediately think of as, as a broad area of study. And that, of course, is the notion of, of nostalgia, which certainly from my own experience feels like a sort of vague and, and kind of ambiguous thing. I, I'm not even sure I would know how to define it. So uh, first, if you could share what led you and inspired you to pursue this as a topic of interest and study. As many uh, labors of love, it started with my own experience. I tend to be nostalgic from time to time. And I started thinking about it the way a psychologist does. Is this a good thing, a bad thing, a neutral thing? Uh, is everyone the same? Are some people more nostalgic than others? I had many, 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 many questions just as a social scientist would. 
I thought this would be a very easy, quick thing to do. Go and read the literature. So I started researching, and this was back in 1994. I was shocked to find that the only empirical uh, evidence that I could locate was an article from 1941 by a psychologist, but it was about homesickness per se. And it was a very small study of children who were away from home at a boarding school. And I said, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. And that one thing led to another. And as I read more and more, I was fascinated with how negatively nostalgia was portrayed in literature, in philosophy, just everywhere, really, uh, psychology. So there were, were tons of opinions, many, many theoretical perspectives. What I wasn't able to find was any scientific documentation that any one of them was any more valid than the other. And, and you mentioned the, the, the reference to, to homesickness, and I, and I want to come back to that. But, but first, in your work, you also referred to a history of nostalgia, and, and I believe you marked it as being sort of an area that has been known or, or described in, in some form or another over 300 years. And I'm curious why you chose that 300-year mark. Was there something that you found in your research you know, from the, from the, the I guess, 17 or 18, I guess the 1800, 18th century um, that, that you pegged as kind of the beginning of something that was identified as, as nostalgia. What, what marked that beginning and what is that sort of origin story, if you will? Actually, my assumption was that it would go back much farther or further than 300 years. So I was looking in uh, the Psalms in the Old Testament. I was looking at some of the classics, because we have many famous works that deal with everything from homesickness to what we today call nostalgia. So it was rather surprising to me that the word nostalgia was an invented word. It was coined in 1688 by a German physician named Hoffer, and he was writing his medical dissertation. And for his evidence, because being a physician, he was approaching it scientifically, he was looking at data from military troops away from home uh, to fight wars. And what he was discovering is that some of the uh, soldiers would become so nostalgic, using that term today, that they in fact became physically ill and in rare cases would even die. So he coined the word using two Greek uh, derivations. And it really translates loosely to something like the pain or the suffering of longing for home. So in Hoffer's original definition, nostalgia was actually homesickness, and it was a label for a medical disease which could be fatal. Wow. That's fascinating. And, and do, you, do you define or see a distinction between nostalgia and homesickness? Today, we absolutely do. And so one of the things I did uh, when I was tracing the literature was to try to link together or find the connection between the expressions of nostalgia as we understand it today, thousands of years ago, even though they weren't using that specific word. It turns out that many different languages have different words that probably translate into something close to the construct that we use today. 
but huffers was the term that survived through those 300 plus years up to today. The difference between what Huffer was talking about as homesickness and how we perceive it today has a lot to do with what sociologists often refer to as semantic drift. As transportation, technology, all of the progress made human beings more mobile and relocation being something you could do very efficiently and uh, communications being much more efficient uh, than they ever were, the idea of home started to morph into much more than a physical building or a physical location, even though it still has that as its inner core. So when you think about home, you might think about the home that you grew up in when you were a child. That's a common way of thinking about it. Some people moved around quite a bit while they were growing up, so they might have a different feeling. But inevitably, regardless of which way you think about home, it, it has broadened to include two very important con, uh, uh, related constructs. One is the social connections, family, relatives, friends, and all of that is especially important to nostalgia. So home is, you know, um, where you developed your identity, who you are. And part of that was in relationship to the people that you were growing up with or around. And so that broadening was very important. The other way, the other dimension of it was that it started to take on the connotations of time passing. Because since now you're looking at things like your origins, your birth, your infancy, et cetera, et cetera, you're actually now tracking yourself, your identity across time. So nostalgia broadened to include much more than just home and actually took on uh, the stronger inner uh, core of meaning, yearning for, or longing for the past. That triggers a number of, of questions for me, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Christine, but you in your work as you, as you began this journey in the mid 90s, you established a methodology ostensibly for, for researching nostalgia and for measuring it. Am I, am I correct in that? You're absolutely correct. As a social scientist, I knew that if you don't have a way to quantify, then empirical research is gonna be very difficult, not impossible, it's still possible. In fact, I did publish fairly recently an article that used qualitative methodology, which is not based upon numbers, but uh, by and large, in contemporary social science, we love to measure things, and that's so critical to progress. So I looked for and did find another survey that existed. It was done by a marketing psychologist by the name of Holbrook, but his inventory was really about a phenomenon that I have since figured out is related to perhaps, maybe, maybe not, but actually different from and distinct from the kind of nostalgia I was studying. So in Holbrook's inventory, uh, I would say the questions have to do with missing a time period that might even predate your own birth. So as you know, there are people who are Civil War buffs. They love to read and learn everything about the Civil War. There are people who are into the Victorian era, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of nostalgia, and I do believe it is a nostalgia, I refer to as historical. 
Some people are now calling it vicarious. There are other synonyms that are used. Uh, the kind I was interested in was the longing or yearning a person has about their own lived autobiographical past. So one of the very first things I did was use Holbrook's inventory and then develop my own inventory to measure what I call personal nostalgia, and then look to see whether they were statistically associated with each other. So that is, that is fascinating. And it, 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 it makes me wonder, because of course, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people who have that historical nostalgia that you reference, that nostalgia for the iconography of a historical period whether it may be ancient history or, or you know, um, 19th century American history or whatever the case may be, uh, or, or in more recent times, you know, a lot of folks talk about the nostalgia for the 1950s and that post-World War II period. But in fact, their perception of that past is, is quite discordant with what that history and past actually was. But not to go down that whole path, I'm curious what you may have found in your research that that triggers people to potentially have that nostalgia for a past that that precedes the, their own life and the distinction between that kind of nostalgia and what you refer to as personal nostalgia where people are are reminiscing about their own personal experiences family friends places etc and so forth that's an interesting and i think important question because it highlights the distinction between the two types of nostalgia. And if you're thinking about it as a predisposition toward nostalgia, somewhat like you would think about a personality trait, like do you have a disposition to becoming nostalgic frequently or more intensely than other people do? If you look at it that way, what I've discovered is that people who tend to be historical nostalgics, to, to use that expression, have some degree of dissatisfaction with the way things are in their current present day. And it can be almost anything. It could be that they just don't care for uh, the cultural customs of the time or the politics of the time or anything, really. Uh, so they, it's really tinged with uh, some of the characteristics that you and I might call cynicism or pessimism. It's a little more dour, a little more sour. And the other part of it, though, which is much more positive and uplifting, is it also, as you rightfully pointed out, has this ability to paint the past with a romantic, rosy glow, so that they, uh, they are looking to the past to provide improvements over the present, and as is often the case, when we look from a long distance, something looks terrific. And the closer you get to it, it doesn't look as beautiful anymore. And that is very different from personal nostalgia. Personal nostalgia, it turns out, and this was very important to me as a psychologist, because I was beginning with the, the fundamental question of, is personal nostalgia adaptive and healthy or maladaptive and pathological as Hoffer thought it was? And what I discovered is that people who pro are prone to personal nostalgia are not necessarily dissatisfied with the present at all. In fact, they're very often people who are well put together in terms of psychological well-being. So there is no correlation between 
people being personally nostalgic and being something like sad or depressed or any of those negative connotations. Very different phenomena. Is there a distinction between people who find themselves to be pers- uh, who, who are nostalgic about their personal past? Did they tend to have a different background than, than one who may not be? So for instance, might they come from bigger families or, or, or closer families? Were there any, pat- have you found any patterns of, of people who do tend to be personally nostalgic that they have a background that perhaps is, is you know, more, more positive or, or, or healthy for a better way of framing that question? The answer to that is very complicated. And uh, I should preface it by saying that the empirical data are not yet complete. So it's premature to reach very, very strong conclusions. However, I can give you the highlights of what we think is going on. I developed along the way in order to address the question you just raised, an inventory or survey of how people perceive their childhoods, not what their childhood actually was necessarily. So two people could have an adversity in their childhood, but later as adults, one sees their childhood as happier than the other does. So we're looking at subjective things here. And it does turn out that one of the differences I found between people who tend to be personally nostalgic and those who are less so is that those who are very nostalgic uh, report having a better or a more positive perception of the social emotional experiences they had as children. So it's more along the lines of a tight relationship with a best friend or with uh, parents and siblings, uh, the activities that they share. And it can be very ordinary things like playing outdoors with friends until dusk set in. I mean, these are really very commonplace things. What stood out in the data that I've been collecting is that the greatest degree of nostalgic memories uh, doesn't focus on extraordinary things. It's not like, oh, and then we took a trip around the world. No, it's more like, what did you do that you would call commonplace? If someone looked forward to, on weekends, we went and visited grandma, or on holidays, we had dinner with, et cetera. Those were the things that people tend to covet when they look back and nostalgically reminisce. So yes, I think there are differences, but in other respects, what I also found is that if you were trying to figure out what is the personality difference between highly nostalgic and less highly nostalgic people, the one variable that I found to be significant statistically is emotional intensity. So what I found, and I thought this was very important, people who are nostalgic are not necessarily more negatively emotional, such as depressed, and they're not necessarily more positively emotional. They're not happier than people who are not, but they have greater capacity to feel emotions intensely or at a greater intensity. So when they're happy, they can be very happy. When they're sad, they can be very sad. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of degree. It's not an either or. It's on a continuum. But that was one variable I found that distinguished nostalgic individuals from less so. What's your take on companies and brands who 
are seeking to evoke nostalgia. I mean, there's this term nostalgia marketing, and I, I, I'm just curious to get your take on sort of the role of nostalgia in the marketplace. I think I've noticed it growing, especially because of certain restrictions due to the pandemic. I see more and more people interested in nostalgia and in marketing and all of those aspects of using nostalgia. You might argue either for people or against people or taking advantage of people. I see it overall when done well as being a positive thing. I would rather watch a commercial that has a nostalgic theme to it, uh, whether or not I'm going to purchase the product, than watching a commercial that doesn't interest me or has no redeeming uh, quality. And one of the reasons I feel this way is because all of my data over the years and many other researchers' data suggests that by and large, generally speaking, nostalgia benefits people, not just the individual, but it benefits society. If we could all be more nostalgic, I think we would have less rancor, less conflict, because nostalgia promotes pro-social emotions, compassion, empathy, forgiveness, tolerance, appreciation for difference. Nostalgia is a very healing emotion. So when marketers do it right, I think it has a positive benefit uh, above and beyond whether they manage to sell their pro uh, product or get a profit margin going there. I think nostalgia, however, and I'm hurrying to include this warning, it is not easy to do it well in marketing. Yeah, and I was going to ask that. I'm glad you, you, you raised that because then my follow-up question was going to be, what is an example of nostalgic, well, we'll first ask, what is nostalgia marketing poorly executed? What does that look like to you? I think it's poorly executed if it takes the tack of just old things. You know, for instance, um, a company might just repackage their food or, or whatever in its original package, uh, whether it's uh, salt or hamburgers or whatever, cereal, it could be anything. And to be honest, if it depends upon the generations here. A millennial might not even recognize that that's nostalgic packaging because they weren't alive when that original existed. So to some extent, it can be superficial and maybe not harmful, but just not particularly evocative of nostalgia. I think it's uh, also clear to say that it depends upon what the product is. Let's use the example of an automobile or tech, like a smartphone. People think of technology and those kinds of products as newer is better because we associate newer with improved. So if you try to bring nostalgia to that, you've got to be a creative genius because if you just connote this idea that, well, here's what your old cell phone was, do you want it back again? Most people would say, no, thank you. I love my new phone. And so you have to think about how you would do that, but it can be done. And the way that I think is one of the keys, not the only ones, certainly, but one of the keys is to bring in what is it about nostalgia, which is at the heart of its beneficial impact. And that is that it's a social emotion. Uh, Subaru, I believe, did a commercial a number of years ago, not terribly long ago, where they had a father, uh, reminiscing and you can tell because they showed the images right you're aware of this commercial i'm sure yeah. and he was remembering his teenage daughter as she grew and went to prom etc 
that is a perfect example of nostalgic advertising that works great because who would not love that ad? Yeah, I didn't shed a tear at all when I saw that. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that you have studied and, and written about more recently is this notion of anticipatory nostalgia. Obviously, when we think about nostalgia, we think of something that's looking back to the past, and you very elegantly have made that distinction between historical nostalgia, where uh, people are are thinking back to to a time before even their own existence, uh, versus uh, them thinking about their own past experiences. But what is the the concept of anticipatory nostalgia? I'm so glad you asked about that. It is my more recent uh, focus of research. And I uh, stumbled across it in part because the more I researched nostalgia in general, the more I came to understand that the reason why different researchers might get slightly different results has to do with the fact that unlike a lot of other emotions, nostalgia is first of all, it's a blend. It's this odd, bittersweet blend of good emotion and bad emotion. That's what fascinated me in the first place. How can you feel happy and sad simultaneously? And it reminded me of bittersweet chocolate, you know, the idea that you can take two things or sweet and sour or whatever and put them together. And now you've got a a separate independent entity. But then the more I looked at that, I said, "Uh aha, it's a little bit like trying to catch a butterfly in motion. And if you catch it on your film uh, with a still frame when the wings are up, the shape of the butterfly is so different than if the wings are spread. And that led me to think about nostalgia as an emotion that unfolds just as the butterfly's wings do. So the further you get away from something, the feelings that you have emotionally can change. So now if you incorporate that as saying, we can't talk about nostalgia unless we talk about it being a dynamic experience across time, that led me to ask this question then, well, what about if you're anticipating, not that you're going to be nostalgic in the future. This is an important distinction that some people have a great deal of trouble wrapping their mind around. I'm not saying that you're predicting, oh, I'm going to be nostalgic one day. No, it's that you are now currently feeling that bittersweet nostalgia for something you still have, but you know you're not going to have it forever. And some of the really easy concrete examples are the parent who watches their little toddler toddle across the living room and thinking, wow, this is so precious. And yet it tugs at their heart and they say, I'm going to really miss this. Yeah, I was going to explicitly ask that question or say an example of that might be a dad who has an 11-year-old girl and a 13-year-old son and is having that that feeling. Right, absolutely. Not, not that that would be me. Not that that would be me <laughs> asking for a friend here. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, asking I, for a friend. But but that's a good example and there are many others and sometimes um that leads us to think about, are we more inclined then to feel that anticipatory nostalgia when things are good? So watching the the 11-year-old or the 13-year-old or the two-year-old 
uh, those are the happy times. So are you already thinking about the fact that this happiness won't last forever? On the other hand, what about, and this led me to uh, one of the research projects I did, what about when you're in a difficult set of circumstances, like you're caring for an elderly relative who might be in hospice or is struggling with a debilitating disorder, and now times are tough and they're stressful and they're difficult, would you be inclined to feel anticipatory nostalgia there? And in fact, uh, my data suggests hmm. that yes, you do, you can. Hmm. Interesting. It's important because I think that ultimately, and going back to something I said earlier about, is this whole emotion good or bad? The answer as all the answers in psychology are, I tell my students this, it all depends. So if you're having a good time and you become so anticipatory nostalgic that it deprives you of some of the happiness of capturing the present moment, then you might say it's overall not such a great thing. On the other hand, if you're caring for an elderly uh, ill person and you have anticipatory nostalgia, it might benefit you greatly by saying, I better treasure every little smile, every little you know, holding of hands because it's not gonna last forever. And so anticipatory nostalgia has a different tone to it, a different benefit, if you wanna use that term, depending upon the circumstances in which you have it. Fascinating. Well, Christine, this has been an awesome conversation. And, um, and thank you for all of your, your time. And thanks for all the great work that you've done in this area over the last 25 years. And uh, hope to have the opportunity uh, to talk to you again sometime. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. Good to be on the back porch. I know. It feels very nostalgic to be with somebody. Yes, it does indeed. Very, very authentic. So, so a great, a great way to start our conversation about nostalgia. And you just uh, recently wrote an article uh, for, for History Factory's blog uh, talking about um, how companies and brands uh, evoke nostalgia and it seems like nostalgia is kind of having a moment. Uh, we're having this conversation on Monday, March 1st, and there was an article, I think, in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Yep. And I guess to, to start, why, why, why do companies and brands want to evoke nostalgia? It's interesting. I think that, um, I think a, a big part of evoking nostalgia is the fact that it creates, it creates an emotional connection, right? Like nostalgia kind of hits you in the feels. And I think this is something that brands, particularly right now, we're in, a, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Everybody is longing to feel something other than being trapped at home. Um, they want to get back to something, some sort of normalcy of life. And so I think that uh, that nostalgia is one way that brands are really doing this. You know, and if you watch the Super Bowl, you'll have noticed that a lot of the commercials in the Super Bowl and uh, the spots this year really drew heavily on nostalgia. Um, and it creates, you know, nostalgia creates a positive, it creates a positive emotion. And so when brands and, and corporations and companies are trying to do new things, drawing on those, on those positive feelings from the past lends trust to new ideas and new products and new directions that a company is going to, going to. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this in a, in a minute, I think, that companies and brands often turn to heritage in mm -hmm. times of uncertainty, mm -hmm. uh, to use a very overturned word, overused word of, of the last year. And we'll talk about sort of perhaps the, the distinction of, of history and heritage and nostalgia specifically. But you mentioned another interesting thing, which was the emotions that nostalgia evokes and it evoking the feels. Yeah. And when I talked with Dr. Christine Bacho, she talked about from her work that people that experience nostalgia tend to, by nature or, or perhaps by science, have a a, a broader range of emotional um, sensory. Mm -hmm. um, so certain people obviously respond to to nostalgia more more um, poignantly or more strongly than than others. Um, and she also referenced uh, one of her favorite examples of a brand using nostalgia in its marketing. And she pointed to the classic uh, Subaru commercial of the father with his daughter and him still, you know, looking at her and yeah. still seeing, you know, her as a, as a, as a young girl. And that, um, that, that particular use of nostalgia actually was both um, uh, essentially what she called personal nostalgia and also to some extent what she called anticipatory nostalgia, where you're mm -hmm. actually being uh, nostalgic in real time about something that you still have, but you know, you're yeah. going to lose. Yeah. Such a great example. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, you mentioned uh, the, the Super Bowl um, being uh, an example of some others. What are some of your favorite uh, examples mm -hmm. of companies and brands using nostalgia in their marketing? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of really good recent examples. Um, one of them, I would say, I think I think Burger King, their recent rebrand, they just rebranded for the first time in like 20 years or something. Um, I think that's a great example of drawing on nostalgia but also giving it a modern spin uh, and, and really connecting with consumers. It's clear from, from the way that they have updated their logo and, and the colors that they're, color schemes that they're using that they really looked to their brand heritage and their brand history when they were doing this, when they were doing the rebrand and they let that guide, uh, guide the design process for them. And so I think that's, that's one really great example. Um, you know, I don't eat at Burger King much anymore, but as a kid I did. And so, just even seeing the, you know, the old logo and with kind of a modern spin was like, oh, I remember that. I remember when I went to Burger King, when, you know, when I was a kid. And so it really um, drew some drew some interesting uh, feelings that way. Um, I think another another really good one was um, Burberry has done a good job of this with their. They had a series of videos that came out uh, just at the end of last year, I think, uh, that really got back to the to the start where where Burberry got their start. I mean, they're considered kind of a high fashion brand, but their start was in developing weatherproof clothing and, you know, you know, for expeditions and things like that. And so I think for them, it was partly a risk for them, you know, it's a little bit risky for them to take that chance and, and say, hey, we're going to bring back the focus on our weatherproof clothing, but they did it in such an artistic and meaningful way that I, I think it's a great example of of how a brand can draw on their heritage and reinterpret it and still have that sense of nostalgia about it. Yeah. And again, Dr. Bacho talked a little bit about this uh, when we spoke that it's hard to do it well. It's, yeah. it's hard to 
and we would probably, from our experience, also argue it could be hard to use your heritage well mm -hmm. as well. Uh, but specifically, you're probably really even adding a, an, another uh, level of difficulty when you are specifically looking to tap into that emotion of nostalgia. Um, so when brands are, are playing with nostalgia fire, as it were, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that um, you think that they need to be particularly careful of? The first thing definitely that comes to mind is is the authenticity. Um, if you're going to use nostalgia just for the sake of nostalgia, it's going to be recognized immediately as this is just a marketing gimmick. Um, so it has to have an authentic tie to your to your brand. Um, you know, Burberry is a good example of that. Like if they could have they could have tapped into singing in the rain and it might have been okay, but the fact that they had tied it to the larger picture of hey, this was our start, this is our heritage of creating, you know, weatherproof clothing. Um, it was an authentic tie to their brand. And so I think authenticity is, is definitely the first thing. And this is where I think it's so important that a company knows their heritage and knows their history and is able to clearly articulate what that is when they use nostalgia, because it helps create that connection um, and, and that authenticity between their use of nostalgia and their heritage. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is that not everything that's nostalgic uh, has aged well. I don't know how many times I have sat, you know, my, my I have two teenage daughters and they love 80s movies and I'll be sitting down, we'll be, be so excited to show them this 80s movie and we get into it and then I realize like, oh man, this, this movie has not aged well. There are like racist jokes in here that would never fly today or this comment was so misogynistic. How did I, why didn't I even see that, you know, in the 80s and so, there are definitely things that have not aged well. And so you wanna be careful, I think, not to, uh, to evaluate when you're using nostalgia, okay, has this aged well? Um, and, and to that point, even just your brand val understanding your brand values in, in that sort of space, you know, if you're, if you're a company, for example, that values um, empowering women, uh, you may not want to, you know, hearken back to times in the 1950s or 1940s where women, you know, didn't have as much um, as many rights or as many, you know, as much influence on their, over their own lives. And so I think that's another thing to, to take into consideration. Yeah. Well, and your point about the eighties is for, for, for anyone who, who grew up in, in the eighties as we yeah. did and now have kids, yeah. um, you're constantly, um, when you're, you're introducing your kids to those movies we grew up with, there's, there's that, I always feel like that's a, uh, that's a white knuckle experience. Oh yeah. It can be pretty cringy for sure. You know, <laughs> and it's funny, the things that they point out too, like I remember watching, we were watching Greece with them, you know, and at the end they're like, well, why does Sandy have to change herself for this guy? Like completely not even the thing that I would have picked up on, you know, in the eighties because it just wasn't a thing, but for them, they immediately know when something has not aged well, so. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you, Corey, is that when we think about nostalgia and we think about nostalgia marketing, we, I think, uh, I think we naturally think about, first of all, consumers, and we tend to think about uh, consumer brands and, and, and heritage brands to some extent. Um, do you think that nostalgia marketing has a, a place or has um, opportunity with other kinds of brands or, uh, or perhaps other, other audiences? Or is nostalgia marketing really a tool that's really best for the, con you know, the consumer audience and, and more of the sort of heritage brands? 
Well, I think I think you need to we need to draw a distinction between two different things here. So one is about using nostalgia as a marketing tool, and the other is drawing on brand heritage and history um, as as a communications tool. And I think they're I think they're a little bit different. Um, so the idea, I think, if you're talking about employees, if you're talking about you know a B two B business venture that you're you're wanting to tap into. Um, it's really more of the the heritage of your brand and the history of your brand that you want to draw on rather than evoking a nostalgic feeling per se. And really, because that, what you're doing is you're building trust, right? You want to build trust with your employees. You want to build trust with potential investors. You want to build trust with potential business partners. And your your brand heritage and your history is a way to do that. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to evoke nostalgic feelings. It's really more about um, proving your your track record uh, and your history um, as a partner, as a business partner. Interesting, yeah. So it's that distinction of if you are, say, a 50-year-old private equity firm mm -hmm. or a 40-year-old technology company, there's still relevance to tapping into that sort of longevity of mm -hmm. performance or innovation, um, but you're not necessarily looking to evoke nostalgia yeah. with, with investors. Right, exactly. So yeah, so the other thing you were just pointing out, uh, Corey, is the notion of heritage brands. So mm -hmm. do you have to be a quote unquote heritage brand or an older company to tap into nostalgia? Or again, is that something that's really better approached, you know, if you're a Mercedes or mm -hmm. a Levi's? So the good news is that you do not have to be a brand that is 100 years old or 50 years old to be able to take advantage of any kind of heritage or history. You can be five years old, you can be a 10-year-old brand just celebrating your 10th anniversary. And there's always things that you can go back to in your history. You can go back to your founding values and, and think about new ways to, to draw those forward. Um, talk about what your customers or your clients first loved when you know when you first came onto the scene, or what investors um, believed about you or, or trusted you to to do. Um, so I think there's always things like that that can be drawn upon, and then I think there's always industry. Like there's there's history of an industry that can also feed um, some of your brand heritage. You know, a lot of people, even though there are a lot of companies, even though they are um, newer brands, they're in an industry that has been around for a very long time. And so what are some of the trends? Uh, what are some of the historical milestones that you can draw, uh, draw from to, to continue to support your, your own history uh, as a brand? Yeah, you raise a good point too, the power of being able to tap into something that's really bigger than yourself as an organization that still gives you mm -hmm. the ability to tap into that sort of you know, historic context. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe you're right. I mean, to your point, if you're tapping into something that an investor initially loved about your performance and you've lost your way and you're trying to get it back, maybe that can evoke nostalgia for a shareholder. So maybe we're wrong. Maybe you yeah. can evoke nostalgia. Yeah, it could be. I mean, when you think about it, that's what <laughs> this is what nostalgia is, right? Like it's something bigger than than just yourself. It's 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 a it's a community or shared experience, and that's why that you know, the car ad is so great where the, where the dad is looking at his little, you know, three-year-old daughter sitting in the driver's seat. That's what he's imagining and seeing, but it, that is a shared experience. Like every parent who has a child of driving age has had something to that experience. And so I think that's why nostalgia is so powerful because it does, it does tap into that like shared community of experiences. And, and that's where I think it can be um, powerful for brands to tap into. Yeah. 
Well, in, in, in bringing the conversation full circle, nostalgia is something that is about, I think, us as human beings sort of managing change, right? Yeah. I mean, sort of the, the ethos of it was around the concept of being homesick. Mm-hmm. And, and now, again, to bring the conversation kind of full circle, so much is happening on such a faster pace. Um, just we're joking, you know, at the beginning. It's like yeah. just the fact that we were together face to face for many people can evoke nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's BC, BC times before yeah. COVID, you know? Right. Yeah. So well, yeah. great. Well, on that note, thank you for, for joining us. Always a pleasure. And uh, thank let's you. go have a cocktail. Let's do it. Okay, that concludes this episode of History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel, and thanks so much for listening. And thank you to our guests, Dr. Christine Baccio and History Factory's Corey Camiso. Be well, and we'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Stay tuned.